Welcome back to the Nature Side Podcast. I'm your host, Justin Thomas. This is the fourth podcast we've done so far, and this one's going to be a little different. Um, it's hard to get guests considering the COVID-19 scenario that we all find ourselves in. Um, and I could do phone interviews and talk to folks, but I don't like the sound quality of phone interviews, and I'd rather do in-person interviews. Um, so in, in lieu of being able to do that now, and I might do that eventually anyway, but I thought it would be fun to go outside, take the audio equipment, which was my cell phone, and record just uh, some observations as I walked along on a hike in some places that I like to frequent that are in my neighborhood. We all have our neighborhood woods and public areas that we have gotten to know. And this is one of the better ones in the in my region within a half hour from the house. But I did something different with this as well. There's audio of me walking along talking about the plants and communities and ecological dynamics of the of the place. But I also took photographs and then I put the photographs on the Facebook page in order and and with labels that you can you can follow along and see the things that I'm seeing and talking about and a lot of some of the species that are that are coming up on in this spring of 2020. The photos will also be on the Nature Site blog, which is thevasculum.blogspot.com. That's thevasculum.blogspot.com. But anyway, there's there's not a whole lot of intro to this. It's a conservation area, sort of in the Ozark border region. You'll see pictures. You'll hear descriptions of it. Uh, my children are along with me and my dog. So here it is, a little hike in the woods, southern Missouri, on April 17th, 2020. Hope you enjoy it. So here I am out in the woods. Um, and this is a a piece of public land that's had an abusive past. There's signs of old homesteads and uh, I'm dropping into this little intermittent waterway that drops down to a larger perennial creek. This intermittent waterway has little patches of multiflora rose and kind of beat up, but it has a lot of value still left to it. It's it's stabilizing. If you saw this place 30 years ago, it probably would have grossed you out, but it's stabilizing and it's it illustrates that dynamic which I'm talking about and other podcasts, those are my children up ahead playing in the creek. Um, so they will cut in, I'm sure, as they should. But uh, it's stabilizing now. This, this creek is stabilizing. The diversity is moving in. Trees are maturing. The canopy is changing. The light dynamics are becoming more variable. There's not been any fire history here. Wouldn't hurt anything for a, for a light dormant season fire, but it's it's progressing even on its own as in as is. And so I'm gonna take a few pictures here along the way, and the this will be something you can follow along with on the Facebook page and see the images that I'm taking. So the first picture is where I'm standing looking down the creek and you can see may apples and there's little white uh, flowers uh, mixing with the may apples. Those are false garlic, not the scorpion bivalve and some ruinemone 
Dolichtrum uh, dolichtroides, or Nimonella dolichtroides, if you like. They are synonyms. Um, also, there's some uh, some garlic mixed in. Well, not garlic. Wild garlic? Wild onions? I don't know. Allium canadens, variety canadens. And so most of this area is, early, is secondary growth woods and lots of leaf litter. Uh, that'll be the next picture. We'll call that picture three. I don't know if I should number pictures. Yeah, I'll take a picture. I'm gonna just do it while I'm talking. I think that should work. So here's picture number three. There's just some sterile woods. Not much going on, leaf litter, uh, blocking out most of the light that would reach the ground. And one of the reasons you might want fire. And then in more stable places that are maturing and there's some soil, you get spots like this where there are still remnants of the biodiversity. This be picture number four, I believe. There'll be a tree with a some sedges growing around the base of it. Those sedges are, let me get a look at them. I still want to shoot from the hip on, on sedges here. They're a bit immature, but, oh yeah, there's some. So that's gonna be, yeah, it's young Carex Blanda. Take another picture, that'll be the next picture, it'll be a spikelet. The spikelets of Carex, still a little immature, but they have there you go. They have beaks on them. Kids are prompting me to move. And we'll go down the creek a little further. There's this rocky slope that's just rich with biodiversity, even in the absence of fire. Again, stabilizing just from the antiquity of what systems do. And so in this next photo, there's lots of Renaminella doctroides, there's some Rubus insulinii, classic woodland species, Helianthus hirsutus, the woodland sunflower, classic woodland species, Cornilla reganoides. Looking nice. I'll take a shot of that one. There's a picture of the Canilla reganoides. There's Tradescantio hyens, the Ohio spiderwort. There's wonderful Carex, like Carex umbelata in here. Uh, there's more Hypoxis hirsuta. I'll put a picture of that in there. Yellow star grass. Um, but mixed in, in a, on a slope here with some mature woods, mature trees, the trees averaging here, the more mature ones, only 12 inch DBH probably, diameter breast height. Um, but due to the lack of disturbance, there's not a lot of nutrient dynamic here. Here's a nice patch of uh, Oxalis violacea, the wood soil. Get a shot of that. Dog ran by, sorry. 
but rich and complexifying because there was some element of nature left here. Uh, Bromus pubescens is your classic woodland brome in this part of the world. Rocky, rocky shelves poking out. There's not a, I mean, it's not blowing me away. This isn't prairie scale biodiversity, but there's biodiversity here in all conservative Ozark species. I'm in an Ozark border zone here. I'm about oh, 20 miles, 30 miles north west of Springfield, Missouri. Um, in, this, in this area, I've got another scene here. It's a nice open shot of some of the more mature timber. And I'll explain more of the larger community dynamics of this place a little bit. Um, in this part of the world, dogs come back. And in this part of the world, this Ozark border, pretty much all the uplands, which were mostly prairie remnants, they've all been pretty much blitzed. Uh, and because of that, even the, even the more mesic areas have experienced degradation from homesteads and you know, livestock were let to run rampant. And Julian Steiermark in the 1930s and 40s documented uh, settlers not only running livestock and destroying and turning up native soil and rich soils that we don't have in the Ozarks anymore, but also they would ignite spring fires late into March, April, and May and would essentially burn the soil off. He would, he would, Steiermark makes mention of the spring fires, the, the one-two knockout punch for these natural communities throughout the Ozarks as being livestock grazing, destroying and disturbing soil, and then spring fires burning up what's left of the soil and the organic matter, and then all of that you know, washing off as ash on the landscape, leaving very rocky places. And he even mentions you know, they're, tr they're trading blooms, blue stem understories for poverty oats understories. And that matches well with, with what we actually see when we walk around in the woods through much of the Ozarks. So I'll snap a quick shot here. This is kind of a woodland, almost glady, I wouldn't call it a glady expression. It's just an open woodland calcareous scene here. My children are being dangerous. But and the spot that I just took a picture of, uh, it's got all kinds of things. Hypoxia cirsuta, yellow stargrass. Uh, it's got orbexalum Pedunculatum. I guess that's I. Yeah, there's also wild quinine, Parthenium integrifolium, some Saldigo mefolia, some dicantheliums look like they're going to be Boschii and Ashii, perhaps. Uh, there's Cynthia patens, the spreading aster, a classic Ozark 
upland species forest. There's so oh, nice. Yeah, so they go. So they go. That must be Radula. The, yeah, that's Radula, triple nerve. Take a shot of that. Just a young Saldigo Radula growing up here. A nice woodland species that also gets in our prairies. And going a few meters further, come across, here's a, a much better example of this open, this natural openness to which I'm referring. Um, Um, but yeah, there's, there's Viola pedatifida. Oh, I'm sorry, Viola pedata. Not the prairie one. Take a picture of that. Uh, there's some young dicantheliums there that I won't try to identify at this stage. This time of year, dicantheliums, a lot of things, even severe trichomes. I can identify them another two weeks. No problem, but when they're young, you're, you're gonna tell yourself lies. You might as well not even bother. Here's a Saladego, here's a Carex. Oh, that's Abdita. Let's get a picture of that. So this is the prairie one. It's Umbelita, but more of a prairie species. Right next to it, some Herisium granovii. It's the next picture. Uh, lots of Krigia biflora. There we go. Arringium yuccifolium. Snowflake last year. Uh, there's some sprouting leaves of Lyatris coming up. I assume they're Hirsuta. Just lots of life right here. Gorgeous, rich life. Not rank, not highly productive, because the soils are sterile. And when you have sterile soils that have been sitting for long periods of time without disturbance, that's when your complexophiles, your late successional um, keys, I'm starting to call them, I'm calling them uh, embedded. They're embedded in the ecological complexity of the system. They are the ecological complexity of the system. They define the communities. And, and you know, a little light, dormant season fire, a spot like this, would definitely help, but it's not something you can do all the time. And it's not something that happened historically all the time. Even here in the Ozarks, you're looking at fire return intervals of, you know, the average being five to seven with historically periods of 30, 40 years with none, and then a couple of years in a row. Um, these systems are ancient and stable and that diversity doesn't need a constant uh, purging of fire when they're stable, when they're rich, when they're intact. Let's get a shot of this. There's this little rocky zone here. Just super rich. Average sea value here is close to five. I mean, this is, this is really great stuff in a place where you wouldn't expect it at all. It's funny, I don't know if you can see it in the pictures, but scattered in here are little, little tufts. There's just a few tufts 
of broom sedge into Progon virginicus, and you probably noticed the cedars already. The cedars are all about the same age, and I guarantee you they, they time their age is about the time the last disturbance was through here. You might notice there's a lot of down dead wood. So something, something happened here that made lots of down dead wood, so it changed the dynamic. Broom sedge came in, now it looks like it's fading. Cedars came in, they're colonizing. Are they going to grow? Are they going to expand? Are they going to be a problem? Kind of. Maybe they're kind of sparse in here. Um, but, you know, cedars, cedars aren't invasive. But the invasion has stopped here. They, are respond, they respond to disturbance. And this was disturbed. And it's now recovering. The cedars, most of these are pretty stunted. I don't see them doing much. And if you remove them now without disturbing the soil, they'd be gone. But then you're kind of, you're, you're altering the natural dynamic of this spot. Now, I'm not saying all cedars everywhere are fine, but I am saying that at a place like this, gosh, it's just doing amazing things completely on its own. And I think ultimately that's what we want nature to do. We don't want to have to hold its hand, right? A lot of places are like this. They just need time to get to this point. Here's a nice woodland scene. Get a shot of this too. Um, yeah, even here we've got the false garlic coming in. Uh, lots of good stuff. I'm not going to go further up the hill, but it just gets better. It becomes very churdy up ahead. But even though it's churdy, it's still very rich in terms of good species and those species are high sea value species. The, I brought up the broom sedge a while ago to point out that 10 years ago there was probably five times that much broom sedge in here. It's, uh, it's now fading because the nutrient load from the disturbance, from the event that caused the trees to fall, germinated the cedars, that flush, that change is gone. We, 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 we incorrectly perceive these places as snapshots in time when they're really processes. There's a lot going on here and we're seeing it in the middle of a process, in the middle of a change. Our jobs as ecologists and as just conscious citizens is to understand that process and to understand its trajectory and to, to help it find that stability to be, to be the best it can be. Here's a Menarda Vibriana coming along. A nice near Ozark endemic. We definitely have the bulk of it in the Ozark. Um, beautiful scene here, the base of a large, large post oak. Just lots of biodiversity there. See if you can name some species there. Put them in the comments. So I've gone down the little rivulet that's following for, oh, 100 meters or so. Now I'm on the other side of the rivulet on more of a, oh, what must be a, a north-facing slope. And I've just taken a photo of the woods here. And these woods are, you can see there's some fairly large, you know, 15-inch, 16-inch DBH uh, white oaks and red oaks. There's a black oak mixed in. 
Um, and you can kind of see the structure, and then under, or mixed in between, are all just these tons of one inch, two inch, half inch, uh, hickories, uh, mostly hickories, some, uh, some oaks as well, mix in. And then there's a bunch of dead, you can see slag, slag, is that the right word? Slash, you can see slash underneath. Um, something happened here. Most of these, most of the slash you can see, if you follow it to the end, has a still has a root wad, but it looks like the root rotted, like it, like it, it didn't fall over with a whole root mound. It fell over after it had rotted. So, you know, based on the decomposition of these trees, um, you know, these trees were these. They probably, they, yeah, and it looks like they stood for a while, too. So I'd say 10, 15 years ago, something happened here, uh, whether it was a hot fire that killed trees that were uh, six inches or less. I don't see any fire scars on any of the existing trees. I don't see any char anywhere. Um, but an event happened here. This was a stable you would not have that density of these little sucker poles unless something dramatically opened the canopy. And now you basically have a, the canopy that was up in the air is now down on the ground. And now there's, there's bio, what biodiversity is left is, is, is struggling underneath it. I don't know if this was intentional or not, but we, we often mimic this with, with different types of types of management, whether it's, uh, TSI, thinning woods, hack and squirt, thinning woods. We have this, this methodology, various methodologies of getting light to the ground. Um, that's applicable in a lot of, lot of cases. In some cases, I'd say in a place like this, um, it's overkill. Like this was a system that was getting stable. It, was, it had age structure to the trees, which means it had canopy structure, which means it would have heterogeneity and light variability. The given time, if these trees were allowed to get 200 years old, you know, and have mixed age, it would be 10-year-old trees, it would be 400-year-old trees, all mixed in. All unstable, undisturbed soils, which are naturally nutrient-poor, you would develop a complexity and intensity in those systems that coming in and selecting which trees live and don't, putting light on the ground instantly and causing mortality and causing disturbance and causing alteration in the, the trajectory of that system, sort of interrupting the way it was going on its own, telling it, we know better than you, um, and interrupting these long processes. Again, these, are, these aren't, this isn't a place, this isn't a forest, this isn't a woodland, this is a process. This is living things in concert, sorting themselves out over time. And given that opportunity, they, the biodiversity here can adapt. It can adjust. It can, it's been through this sort of thing before, if there's a pulse. Now, granted, if this is a completely trashed out woods full of invasive species, we're looking at different dynamics, kind of the same dynamics, but we feel differently about them, right? Um, but I don't like seeing woods like this because they've basically been, somebody hit the reset button and we don't want to hit the reset button. We want systems to complexify. We want systems to stabilize. We want them to do that of their own trajectory if they have that, that potential. Um, when we interrupt that, 
we don't do what we think we do. We, we basically put it into a tailspin. The system becomes chaotic and everything, everything that was going towards the tra trajectory becomes the dog. The organisms that were there that were starting to sort based on their genetic information, their, their histories are starting to sort into things and those selection variables that were pushing them. All of a sudden, those are yanked out from under them like a rug and the system is scrambling for what happened, where are we going? And I, I, I contend that a lot of species, when that happens to them, they don't do anything for a while. They just sit, I mean, the chaos reigns and, and a lot of species, I think, just don't respond appropriate to different types of management because the management is never consistent. You need consistency for organisms to poke their head out of the ground, look around, feel like nobody's gonna take shots over their head and start doing what they do. Now I better go catch up with my children and dog. I see them, they're safe. All right, dropping down here along the creek with a little bit of a littoral shelf, little music area above the creek. And there's a few really nice plants and an otherwise, you know, the, the larger landscape being more degraded, surprising to see. So here's, here's a, there's Eupatorium sessiliflorum, sessiliflorum, that makes more sense. Over here next to it, several large patches of Tanidia integrima. They're like mitten-shaped leaves. This, the wild pimpernel, I believe. Just a wonderful smell. Here's Eli. Let's see if Eli wants to smell. Does it smell like Indian food, Eli? A little. Kind of pickly. Yeah. Now smell it. It takes a minute. Oh yeah, it does. Yeah, it's like good curry. Yeah. I don't know if it's edible. Can I smell it again? Uh, yeah. There's a whole bunch behind you. Yeah, you crush it. At first, it just smells like dill, but give it a second to vaporize. <laughs> uh, what else we got in here? Oh, there's some, you know, classic woodland species. Here's some uh, geranium maculatum shot. Here's a, right along the edge of the creek. There's a, that's a viola triloba. We don't call it, I don't call it palmeta in the Ozarks because I think it's different than the eastern palmeta. We stick with our triloba name. Maybe if some of you in the east can look at that and tell me if you think it looks like your, your uh, palmeta, which triloba has been lumped into. I always figure I can call it triloba and it can always be lumped. But once you call it palmeta and it turns out to be something else, you can never... Pull that data back out. What else is along the creek here? Oh, I was going to take a picture. There was a Thaspium back there. Thaspium barbanode, Chapmanii, one of the two. I'm just now learning that those are two different things, thanks to the work of Aaron Floden in Missouri, who came did a bunch of work, went to school, did work in uh, Appalachia and, and uh, through the south. And, you know, that, that, that type of travel, seeing plants or anything outside your region and coming back, you start realizing, oh, 
we actually have that, or I've been calling this that. And, you know, when you, when you change the abundance of the common things, you see, here's a nice one, here's the anemone, anemone virginiana. Kind of has leaves similar to that geranium, but more, the veins are different. Usually only has three lobes, or three main lobes at least. Sorry, I'm uh, killing time here looking for looking for that Thaspium I wanted to take a picture of. I know it's here somewhere. Okay, I'm going to pause. Oh, I just found a young inflorescence, developing inflorescence of the Tinidia integrima. That'll be the next shot. I can't guarantee the quality of these shots because I'm kind of taking them more as a as a guide so people can see what I'm seeing, less about uh, the quality of the images. And my children are climbing a giant log bridge. It's good for them, right? Oh wait guys, what'd you say you eat when you get to the top? Oxalis. What is oxalis? Uh, oh, it's like a sour plant that's edible. It kind of looks like a clover and has purple like rings on the petals of it. Uh, leaves. And it is, the other side is also purple. It's like a violet purple. Uh -huh. And, but don't mistake it with clovers. Let me take a picture so you can, people can see where you are. So they've, uh, they've, they've climbed up this log from the creek and at the top there's oxalis. What's that? Oh, Eli climbed up the I bank. Here's a fun one. Put a bit of this down here. This is a ranunculus recurvatus. I think the theme lately has been palmately lobed herbs, right? Yeah, I just ran out of the uh, the thaspium. Um, we're gonna get down here in a broad bottom, but the slopes have been seeping species into just big rafts of false garlic, um, amongst other wonderful things. And, and along the creek edge, there's been tons of little rosettes of Echinacea purpurea, which we don't see often in this part of the world. When you do, it's usually music. Hey. Oh yeah, this is the dubling bridge. Now here's an interesting plant in the little creek, creek bottom on the edge, kind of in a disturbed area. I'm gonna put it up as a, I'll put it up as a quiz plant. See if anybody knows what this is. It's kind of a, got, oh, it's a basal rosette that's expanding into a stem with some lobed leaves. I'll write in the comments, quiz plant. Okay, this is, anybody can identify that one? Well, we've hit the, the larger floodplain here and it's getting more beat up. Uh, it's had more damage. Uh, the streams are incising. It's a major problem everywhere, the stream incision. Uh, you know, from the dredging in the Mississippi all the way up to these even little ephemeral streams now are just cutting down to compensate. And the hydrology of the uplands are dropping, making sites change. You know, it's, it's a sort of a, a silent disturbance that you don't notice. And you, when that happens, you start seeing sensitive species, those, those keystone species, those embedded 
rich ecological indicators, they start falling out and you're left with generalists and then niches are open and you get things like uh, multiflora rows popping into those those energy holes in the system. Here's a shot, multiflora rows, this floodplain. <clears throat> Take another shot of the floodplain itself. It's kind of messy and floodplains are are high productivity kind of messy anyway. This one's this one has potential. There's a lot of good stuff here. You know, there's no fescue. There's no real crazy invasives. Um, and there's a lot of good stuff around. Like right here at my feet, there's a big patch of geranium maculatum. Uh, Bromus pubescens everywhere. Limus virginicus. Limus mcgregorii. Um, Crophylum procumbens, wild chervil. Not a great indicator of much. Other than you're in a floodplain, Saldigomifolia, not super great. Now uh, there's some Myanthemum racemosum, that's fine. About what you'd expect. There's, there's little colonies of a, of a Eupatorium uh, purpurium scattered through here. Eutrochium purpurium, folks might want to call it. Uh, lots of elm seedlings. Um, Patches, sort of this sort of shattered remnants of of river oats that were here, uh, Chesmanthium latifolium, and pockets of multiflora rose. That their their time is coming. The rose mosaic virus will get to them eventually, and they're not really expanding, so it would seem. Not sure what that is. Dried up. But yeah, I mean these floodplains, they you know, especially with the crazy rains we've had lately, and you've got a stream that's eroding away and constantly depositing new material. You have early successional trees that aren't really aiding the complexity. They're slowly building complexity in these systems. And you can tell here that this went from a Celtis forest to more of an ash forest. Uh, the ashes are still alive. A lot of this part of the world still doesn't have emerald ash borer, but it's coming. Um, and there's an oak over there. It's like a red oak. Oh, and then, yeah, so here's a nice patch of flocks. A nice patch of flocks. Divericata working its way through the woods. And you can almost tell where the stability and the hydrology has been altered dramatically and where it hasn't along the stretch as the, the creek banks are more and more exposed. Um, yeah, I'll take a shot of this. You can see here this is a, a hardcore erosional zone. Yeah, buddy. How'd you find the clay? So is that erodes that yeah, you lose hydrology? And then what's funny is, I don't know if you can tell that photo, but on the far left, it's pretty, on both sides of the creek, there's just a solid ground cover of, of uh, American elm. Um, it's almost as though the hydrology is dropping. This thing was progressing towards more of an oak, hickory sort of floodplain forest. And then that is getting kiboshed and the elms in response to the mortality are coming back in. 
it's resetting the clock, resetting the clock from these lag time hydrology events. Clay. Okay, we got we got Brighton on here. He wants to tell us about this clay he's getting out of this eroded bank. Yes. And I'll take a picture of it while he talks about it. So there's like a kind of clay. This part back down here. I thought this was clay actually, and it's just limestone. And there's a little bit of clay on that, and that's not it's more silt than clay. Here, I'll take a picture right where your feet are. You can see the, the gray yeah. Brighton's talking about, and above it's the reddish clay. And this is the reddish clay, but there's also, in the other part, there's some silt. Mm -hmm. And it's actually, it's good, it's harder than clay, but I like to play with it. <coughs> what do you do with the clay you, <coughs> excuse me, harvest? Play with it, and I'm an artist, I have a website. So, what do you do with it first? Do you just use that clay? It, do you have to purify have it or something? To, so, basically, you just take clay and then break it into little parts, mm -hmm. or just put the whole glob in a bowl or something with water, a lot of water, and then just dissolve mush it. it yeah, dissolve, dissolve it, it into and then slip. It will, and then just sit that clay water, just let it sit somewhere, but um, and the water will rise up since the clay is heavier because it has natural materials and that stuff and silt and whatever, it will uh, go down <clears throat> and then the clay will, um, you'd harvest clay from the bottom. What's at the very bottom though, with the rocks That's and natural the material, the rocks and sand. Yeah, so you want, the, you want the stuff above that yeah. when, you, when it all settles. And, but it's really fun and you can just find it on natural riverbed. And there's an, also a video of Grant Thompson and YouTube. And uh -huh. he Go ahead. Uh, he <laughs> does it's how to make clay from dirt and you just go to your uh, riverbed and then collect some dirt and then follow his steps on my video and then you'll have clay. But I wanna purify this clay so I can use it for sculpting on my art website. Hmm. Fantastic. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Brad. That's all. So here's a spot where there's some echinacea purpurea. You can see the basal leaves in here mixed in with some Prophylum procumbens, some Pluginatum biflorum, and Erebus levigata kind of in the foreground. Nice. You know, historically, this, this sort of scene would have been more common throughout this floodplain in general. Oh, and all of a sudden there's a big patch of Carex oligocarpa. All kinds of good stuff. I'm gonna take a general photo of this. Just a nice little rich garden spot that's indicative of what this floodplain's character probably should be. It's hard to say for sure. So we're at this little seepage area coming off the side slope. It's one of my favorite spring wildflowers. It's cardamine bulbosa. Take a picture of that. That's not going to be a great picture. It's not going to be a good picture. Actually, rather turn. Let's get a better close-up of it. There you go. And it has these uh, wonderful basal leaves. I don't know if we'll be able to get into them. Yeah, we'll skip that part. But this whole, along this whole valley here, I'll take a picture. We're actually on a trail looking up the valley. And the whole valley here on the side, there's seepage wetlands coming off the side in various states of destabilization. But with 
with the last morsels of antiquity still in there, you know, they, they have a pulse. There's still, still some life in them if they were just given the proper chance. I ran across something I can't pass up. There's a ranunculus hispidus here, and it's a it's a complicated taxonomic group. That species has been treated as various levels of subspecies or varieties. Well, this first picture is good ranunculus hispidus, if you want to call it a variety. It's a variety or subspecies hispidus. And it's growing in a wet area. It usually grows, I mean, it's right on the edge of a, of a wet transition into one of these seepy zones like I showed a while ago. And the leaves are really cut up. It's still really hairy. It hasn't converted in form. It's a little bigger, more robust than it usually is in the uplands. But I'm also going to take a picture and show, and I'm also going to show a picture. The next picture is Ranunculus carisatorum growing in a similarly wet spot. It grows out here too, as a uh, as a distinct species. I mean, here they are in the same habitats, and they maintain their morphologies as being distinct. Um, so while you're out and about seeing buttercups, you might try to make that distinction. The third one in the complex is, is uh, uh, Ranunculus septentrionalis. It's the swamp uh, buttercup. Grows in deep swamp, really big, flops over, roots at the nodes. There's none of that around here. Not really super common in the Ozarks. I won't have a video, won't have a photo of that. But anyway, good buttercups. So that was it. That was the, the buttercups were the end. Um, my phone battery was exhausted. And the kids were tired and hungry and ready to go home. So we, uh, we hightailed it from there. But anyway, I hope, th I hope you enjoyed that little tour. And again, you can, you can see the pictures, the photographs associated with the comments in the video. Uh, they'll be on the Facebook page where this will be posted and also be for longer, safer keeping. They'll be on the NatureSite blog page, which is thevasculum.blogspot.com. And with that, I'll bid you adieu and thank you again for listening to the NatureSite podcast. Thank you for listening to the NatureSite podcast.